I've been asked to speak to you tonight on the genius and mission of man and woman with a focus on woman. And I'm going to do so from the perspective of the thought of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, more commonly known as Edith Stein. And I'll also employ some of the writings of Karl Wojtyla, later Pope St. John Paul II. Now, the terms genius and mission don't appear expressly in the writings of Stein, but she does give us a point of departure for thinking about the genius and mission of man and woman, because she often speaks about the giftedness of man and woman, especially of woman, and then also of the vocation of man and woman. And so we're going to try and interpret genius and mission from that perspective. Now, like Dr. Savage last night, I'll be speaking about both man and woman, and Edith Stein does the same. Whenever she deals with one sex or gender, she deals with both together and then focuses her understanding on one particular sex or gender, most often woman. But it's important that we hold it within that context because though we're created as male and female, we are first, of course, human. So let's begin from the perspective of this giftedness of man and woman. Stein breaks our giftedness down into three categories. And we can understand this from the perspective of creation. So we've received the gift of our being and life as human. And so our first gift is to be created as human in the image of God. We bear in our being the imago Dei. We are the image of God. And this, of course, is an immense gift. It's an immense gift to be a creature. And it's a more immense gift to be a creature that stands in creation as an image of God. There's a further specificity to this imaging of God, and that further specificity is first given as male and female. Each of us as human stand in existence as man or woman. And to be a man is to receive a gift from the creator. And to be a woman is to have received a gift from the creator. And just like being human is an immense gift, this too is also an immense gift. And as we proceed tonight, we'll see something of that giftedness. Finally, there's a third specificity given by Stein to this giftedness from the creator. That is, each of us are individual human beings as man and woman. And this is a further specification because Stein holds this exalted understanding of human individuality. We all stand in existence as an image of God. Each of us, according to a different way, male and female, divided the human species in two. And then each of us and, as individual have our own personal giftedness that we've received from God. Indeed, Stein's understanding of this is such that each of us image God in a unique way. And when she explains this, she explains it according to the refraction of light, like we see in a rainbow. When we see a rainbow, we see white light received from the sun refracted into all of its different hues. You could think of this as an infinite array of light according to different colors. And for Stein, we're images of God as a refraction of the ray of divine light. And each of us individually are a particular hue of this light. And this, of course, again, is a great giftedness. And it draws us into a very unique relationship to God. So we have this threefold giftedness, human, sexuality, and individuality. Now let's look a little bit at vocation, and this corresponds very well to this threefold character of God's gift to us in creation. And we come at it from the perspective of vocation, we're thinking primarily of the word of God received by us in the fullness of Christian revelation. God has not only called us into existence as creator, but God as redeemer has called us to realize 
our own particular vocations. And just like his giftedness in creation has this threefold character, our vocation also has this threefold character. As human, God calls us all to self-giving love, to self-sacrifice. One can understand this as an interpretation of the gospel paradox. One must lose oneself to find oneself. This paradox is repeated in all four gospels to a total of six times, and therefore represents an important Christian teaching. One must lose oneself, ultimately for the sake of Christ, to find oneself. That is, one must perform an act and live in a state of self-gift, of self-sacrificial love. And this is our universal call to holiness as human. We realize this universal call to holiness as human when we live in this state of self-giving, self-sacrificial love. And all of us, in one way or another, is called to that. However, this is also further specified just like our giftedness. The call is further specified according to whether one is man or woman, according to male or female. That is, this call to self-sacrificial, self-giving love has its further specificity in whether I'm a man or a woman. I realize this universal call to holiness in self-gift as a man or, for the women here present, as a woman. And then, just like our giftedness has this individual character to it, so also Stein proposes to us that each of us have a personal vocational specificity, a call that's specific to each one of us, not only as human, not only as man or woman, but as this very individual. It's wonderful that Franciscan have set up this department for personal vocation, and you see Stein speaking about this in the 1920s and 1930s. Just like we're created after God's image, we're called to realize that. Just like we're created as male and female, we're called to realize that. And just as we are created as individuals, we're called to realize something specific there too. Now, when we speak about human sexuality from this perspective, embedded in our humanity and further specified by individuality, we see that the first thing we should notice is that there's an equality of the sexes. For Stein, as for many of our thinkers that have presented in the 20th century, we see very clearly put before us that there's an equality of the sexes. Male and female are equal in dignity. One could put this teaching just like so. We are more alike than we are different, and our likeness establishes us with an equality that's the basis of any further thought. However, with this equality, there's also a differentiation. It's not a plain equality. It's an equality within which there's found a differentiation. And this differentiation into male or female can often be understood in our contemporary world as something like a battle of the sexes. Man said opposite woman, woman said opposite man. But of course, that's not a correct understanding of it. The creator didn't create us male and female to enter into opposition with one another. No, this differentiation founds a complementarity. Complementarity is a kind of fittingness of man and woman to realize their common vocation called to holiness in different but complementary ways, in ways that are distinct, but in ways that match or fit one another. And this is for the boon of the human community. This is for the boon of each individual person. This is for the boon of human couples. Now, as soon as we come to complementarity then, 
we have to think, think more of the meaningfulness of sexuality or gender. We have to think, well, what is the ultimate meaningfulness of this? A helpful way to come at it, and this is the way Stein comes at it, is from the perspective of Christian marriage. Now, to understand this, we have to step way back into Genesis and see with the creation of the human person, as male and female, we have at the same time a creation of the institution of marriage. When God created us male and female, at the same time he created the institution of marriage. First of all, a natural institution, and then in the Christian era, a sacramental institution. And so the institution of marriage came into existence with the human person as male and female. Therefore, if we're going to understand the meaning of being a man or the meaning of being a woman, it's going to have its first sphere of reference relative to marriage and with marriage with family life. That is, my existence as a human male capacitates me to become a husband and father. And so too all of the guys here in the audience tonight. And your existence as a human female, if you're a woman, gives you the capacity to become wife and mother. And if we understand being father and husband and mother and wife, then we'll understand what it means to be created human as male and female in a very foundational way and it'll capacitate us to understand all of the rest of masculinity and femininity. That makes sense, no? These two realities go together, sexuality and marriage. These two realities fall together, sexuality and marriage. To understand one correctly is to understand the other. To understand the other correctly is to understand the first. So, to understand what it is to be created man and woman as human, we have to understand the reality of marriage, and with marriage, the opening of marriage to family life. Now, I'm going to read a lengthy quotation from Stein as a way to contextualize what we speak about as we move forward. Okay? So bear with me. It's quite lengthy, but it's worthwhile. It's a worthwhile read. I am convinced that the human species develops as a double species of man and woman. That the human essence, in which no trait should be missing, shows a twofold development, and that its whole structure has this specific character. There is a difference not only of bodily structure and of a certain physiological functions, but the whole somatic, that is bodily life, is different as well as the relation of soul and body. And within the psychological sphere, there's a similar difference of the relationship between intellect and sensuality and between the various intellectual faculties. The female species is characterized by a unity and wholeness of the entire psychosomatic personality and by the harmonious development of all the faculties. The male species, by the perfecting of individual capacities to obtain record achievements. This differentiation of the species, as worked out by philosophy, and which corresponds to the destiny of sexes shown by theology, man and woman are destined to have dominion over the earth, that is, to know and to enjoy the things of this world, and to form them by creative action. But these cultural tasks are assigned in the first place to man, woman has given him as his helper. Both man and woman are meant to produce and educate posterity. 
Nevertheless, this is predominantly the task of woman, being physically and psychologically more united to the child, and through this union, more restricted in her whole way of life, whereas man is placed by her side to help and protect her. Her particular way of knowledge corresponds to her task of being companion and mother. Her strength is the intuitive grasp of the living concrete, especially of the personal element. She is the gift of making herself at home in the inner world of others, of entering into their aims and ways of work. Feeling holds the central place in her life, enabling her to grasp and appreciate concrete being in its proper quality and specific value. She desires to develop the whole human personality as perfectly as possible, and her whole life is governed by Eros, the purest flower of which is serving love. Both man and woman are destined to show forth the image of God. It is part of their finite being that they have to do this, two in a specific way. One difference has already been indicated. Woman reproduces the divine perfection more by the harmonious development of all her powers. Man by the more pronounced development of particular faculties. It would also be possible to show their difference in relation to the attributes of God and to the divine persons. Now what we have here is a kind of holistic presentation of the distinction of male and female that at its center contain, contains this idea of wife and mother, husband and father, or as she puts it in the text, companion and parent. Now the richest way to approach this is from the perspective of parenthood, because with parenthood we get a very defined and specified understanding of human sexuality. We, all of us here tonight, have attained a level of maturity as male and female. We've attained bodily maturity. And just like the other living creatures of the natural world, this capacitates us to pass on bodily life to the next generation. However, we immediately see that our reproduction of others in like kind is not merely a bodily reproduction. The church teaches us, just like Stein mentions in this paragraph, that we are not merely to procreate, but to educate. And so human parenthood is a much richer reality than merely the reproduction of another of, life, of like kind. Human parenthood indeed is not primarily a physical reality. Human parenthood is primarily an inner spiritual reality. Why? Because having bestowed bodily life upon the child, the human parents have then the duty to bestow spiritual life upon the child. Now, what has this got to do with masculinity and femininity? Well, just like man and woman realize bodily life for the child in a different way, so they realize this bestowal of an inner spiritual life on the child in a different way. And just like we have achieved bodily maturity to pass on bodily life, so too we have to have attained spiritual maturity to bestow this kind of maturity upon our children. And so together with this giftedness of masculinity and femininity, the power to pass on life to the next generation so that they too can participate in the reality of creation, we have the responsibility, the vocational call to rise to what that means, to become capable of being a husband and wife, to become capable of being a father and mother. Because with this capacity, the giftedness of human sexuality has attained its proper and full perfection. Carl Wojtyla calls parenthood 
a certain spiritual perfection in the human being. And he recognizes in Christ's call to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, intimations of the meaningfulness of this for the human person. To be created in the image of God is a great gift. To pass that image on to the next generation is a great gift. To participate in the maturation of that next generation is a great call, a responsibility that we have. And so we have a responsibility to rise to the meaningfulness of this giftedness, and we do so when we reach a basic capacity to become a parent, when we take that responsibility upon ourselves. And so the meaningfulness of masculinity and femininity is shown most clearly from the perspective of parenthood. Having received this gift of life, we have the possibility to pass it on. Having received the gift of maturation through our prior generations, our parents and teachers, etc., we have the possibility to pass this on. Okay. Now, I wish to read a quote from Karl Wojtyla. It's thankfully shorter than the last quote. Parenthood is not only an exterior fact connected with generation, especially with the birth and possession of a child, but is also a certain inner fact. In this fact, a natural perfection of being is realized. In parenthood, spouses find a confirmation not only of their physical, but also of their spiritual maturity and a foreshadowing of their own existence. Fatherhood and motherhood in the world of persons are the mark of a particular spiritual perfection. This always consists in some generation in the spiritual sense, in forming souls. Spiritual fatherhood and motherhood as a manifestation of interior maturity is an end to which every human, a man and a woman, is called in some way and the ways will be quite diverse, even outside marriage. This vocation, as I said, is implicated in the evangelical call to perfection, which indicates the heavenly father as the supreme model. Thus, man attains a likeness to God the creator, particularly when this primary spiritual fatherhood or motherhood, whose archetype of God is God, is also formed in him. Now we see in this something of a summary of that which I just said, but I want to draw together the strands of thought. We have this threefold giftedness as human image of God, realizing that humanity as male or female and as this particular man or this particular woman. And together with this gift, we have a threefold vocational call. The call to realize what it means to be an image of God in self-giving, self-sacrificial love, differently specified by being man or woman and as this very individual. And when we assume the responsibility of this vocation, we accept the gift of human sexuality and we take upon ourselves the responsibility to bear this gift for the next generation. And in this, we realize a kind of spiritual perfection that draws us closer to the meaningfulness of God the Father. Okay, I think I've spoken for long enough now and I'm gonna take some questions and we're gonna come back further then to speaking more about 
the genius and vocation of femininity after we take some questions. If you have any. I'll summarize a little point and emphasize it just to inspire some thoughts in you. With the creation of the human person, what we have is not merely a bodily being, a living bodily being, but we have a person creating the image of God, a spiritual creature. So we're evidently all bodily creatures, but at one and the same time, we're also spiritual creatures. Now, a spiritual creature can't come into existence except by an act of creation. And God is the only one who performs these acts of creation. So at the conception of each new human person, God the creator acts by the creation of the individual human soul. The human person, as the image of God, as this spiritual creature, is destined and is naturally capable of living on after death. We have a natural immortality according to the spiritual dimension. And ultimately, we know from Christian theology, we're destined to enter into God's presence. So the human person is of great import. The image of God, a person destined to live on forever. Now, God gave us in our bodily being this gift of human sexuality, this capacity to become husband and wife, father and mother. That is, he gave us this capacity to participate in his act of creation of new human persons. Someone who did not exist before this moment, someone who will go on to exist forever, someone who's, in, who's destined to enter into God's eternal presence. This is a particularly awesome power, no? Is there anything more powerful I could possibly do than participate with God in the creation of a new human person? A being that will live forever, a being that can potentially enter into God's presence. And then not only this, I have been given this great dignity that God entrusts this person to me to me and my spouse, to form this person for eternity so that this human person will attain his or her proper maturity and then be capacitated to enter into God's presence. That's an amazing responsibility. It's a responsibility I fall back before because it's too great for me. And I think God is crazy for having created reality in this way. Like, Immortal beings entrusted to us, frail, weak, sinful beings. But that's the way he set up the human order, the order of knowledge and love. And that's what we get to participate in. That's a primary giftedness, and that's a primary vocation. And this is all found inscribed in human sexuality. Angelic beings do not have this capacity. The human being does. And this is the embedded meaningfulness of sexuality. I can become husband and with that father. 
the women in the audience can become wife and with that mother. And when we mature to the point that we can take this responsibility and then begin to mature through the course of time with this responsibility, a kind of spiritual stature is realized, a spiritual perfection. We receive the image of God more fully because we're likened more to the Father. Just like the Heavenly Father, we are to become parents of others. We are to participate in their maturation. And so when we look at human sexuality and we see it from this perspective, we see its great dignity and we see a foundational meaning determined for it from this perspective. And then we ask ourselves, well, well, what do we do in the face of this? Well, we recognize the great gift that God has given. We receive it by accepting it and cooperating in our lives to bring about a beautiful harmony with some other human person in marriage and then create a foundation for a family that has this marital stability and this order of love. This put before you is the meaning of human sexuality. What do you think? <laughs> it's too much, isn't it? Yes, so. So I was having a conversation with someone who's not Catholic over the summer, and she really did not like the idea that of referring God to fa as father, like as a masculine quality. But since both man and woman are made in the image and likeness of God, is it true that we can say that God has both a masculine quality and a feminine quality, like a mother and father component? Here you go. <laughs> so to, to begin with, we have to understand that God transcends sexual difference. The sexual difference of man and woman, male and female, is something of the created order. And it bears reference to God's relationship to creation, to the human species, fulfilled in Christ's relationship to the church. So we discover in the letter to the Ephesians that Christian marriage has this sacramental character that signifies Christ's love for the church. And so we see that sexuality is something of the created order in a horizontal way and of the created order reference to God vertically. But God transcends sexual difference. However, when God speaks of himself to us in Revelation, he calls himself Father. And so we take seriously what God says about himself. And so we too, in response to his self-revelation, call him Father. And that's why we call God Father. There could be many other reasons given, but I think that's sufficient. I usually call people by what they call themselves, especially if they're God. Um, so you mentioned a couple times the spiritual perfection that's attained from a man, or a kind of spiritual perfection that comes from a man becoming a father and a woman becoming a mother. So if a man doesn't become a father or a woman doesn't become a mother, 
in their earthly life, can they achieve that same level of spiritual perfection? So the, the quote from Wojtyla here, and, and it matches very well with, with Stein, Teresa Benedicta, puts before us that spiritual parenthood is something we can realize outside of the vocation of marriage and family. And you see this very clearly in consecrated life. And so we call priests father. And we call nuns who are the head of the order mother. And so those who are consecrated to God become spiritual parents for many people. Indeed, all of the members of the church are in some way given to those who are consecrated to God. And they may have a specific domain of pastoral activity. And all of those people are their children. So Christ has said, if you leave marriage and family for him to follow him in consecrated life, you will have many, many children. Why? Because you become a spiritual parent of many, many human persons. How so? Because you bestow upon them a maturation of the spiritual life. And you do it not only for this or that restricted individual or these five or ten children, but in a vaster scale. And so those who are consecrated to God are also parents. Now, many of us here in the audience recognize that there are people consecrated to God that have parented us. I know my spiritual director or my spiritual father has been a parent to me. What does it mean to be a parent? To help another being mature through time. He's, he's helped me to mature through time. I become more fully myself through his ministry to me. And often you find this in the confession or you see it at mass when, it's, when, when a priest is preaching or when a religious sister is ministering to you or even if they're praying in their convent alone, the spiritual grace has been given to us through their intercession for us. There's the life given over for us. Then you could also think of it more broadly in other areas. All of human life is in a way co-educational. All of human life should be about helping one another to mature. One of the ways we mature is by attaining virtue, and friendship is a defined place within which we attain virtue, or at least should be. And when we help one another attain virtue, or mature in any way, we're in a way parenting one another. Why? Because we're taking responsibility for the maturation of another human being. And so we all have to give ourselves over to this responsibility for one another, and in this, we attain our own perfection. Now, something interesting is happening here, another interpretation of that paradox. When I give myself over to the perfection of another, to their, their maturity, I also attain my own maturity. Yeah? Human life is deeply paradoxical. I cannot find myself unless I lose myself. I cannot attain my own maturity if I do not minister to others for their to attain their maturity. Yes. I have a microphone. Great. It's working now. Um, I think my question is pretty similar, but it goes into like being husband and wife instead. Um, if you're maybe not strictly consecrated, um, but you don't become a husband or a wife, can your sexuality still be oriented toward perfection? Say, if we're aiming toward Christ as the bridegroom, as we're all the church's bride. So this and the last question are, are probably blessed to consider from the perspective of vocation. So as I said before you here, we've got this universal call to holiness. I recall to realize that by self-giving, self-sacrificial love. 
which means giving yourself over to an other or others, and in this realizing a state of life that we call a self-giving state of life. The two states of life that the church has put before us is marriage and consecrated celibacy. And in entering into these states of life, we affect self-gift, and then we give of ourselves perpetually in these states to others. And so when we think of vocational call, we think of a call to enter into these states of life. Now, that doesn't mean that a life prior to marriage or prior to consecrated celibacy or outside marriage and outside consecrated celibacy does not have value. In as much as we truly lend ourselves to the service of others, we're affecting this, the realization of what God wants for us. We're realizing what he has called us to be and what he's called us to do. Have I answered your question? Yeah, yeah. It is, and notice that, that sacrificial love doesn't, it doesn't destroy you. In losing ourselves, we find ourselves. It's painful, but it doesn't destroy you. And we know this, yeah? More thoughts, questions, comments? Um, my question kind of has to do with um, entrusting an immortal soul into your hands, so to speak. Um, I've had kind of conversation with friends about how when you get married, you take on the responsibility of your husband's soul, but that with your child, it's not the same level of responsibility in terms of once they reach adulthood or maturity in their faith, they make, can make their own decisions. I was just wondering if you could clarify that. Yeah, let, let's say most generally that given that each human person is a free individual, we don't ever have absolute responsibility for another. But we do assume responsibility for one another. We could say when that question was asked of God in the beginnings of the Old Testament, am I my brother's keeper? In some way we are one another's keeper. We take responsibility for one another. If you enter into the state of marriage, you take a greater kind of responsibility for your spouse but then also for your children. But in neither of these cases is it absolute. Each individual bears responsibility ultimately for themselves. But it's still an ability to cooperate with God providentially in the other person's salvation, in the other person's entering into his presence. And if we abdicate that responsibility, if what I've said here is correct, we're abdicating something of the meaningfulness of human sexuality we're not recognizing this gift and we're not accepting it in our lives. In relation to this, a, a thought of Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta comes to mind. I don't find it strange, she said, or odd that I would trust God. I find it strange or odd that he would trust me. Now, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quotation, but you see here something of the great trust that God places in us by giving us this providential responsibility to cooperate in one another's salvation. He really places a great dignity in our hands to perform this activity or this state of cooperation. And I think, like Mother Teresa, it is odd that he trusts me so much, but hopefully, I'll be worthy of the trust he has placed in me as time passes on. Now, I said we'd move this talk more towards 
the genius and mission of woman as we proceeded. And to do so, I'm going to take a quotation from Stein as a point of departure for our conversation. At the turning point of history, and especially of the history of woman, stands the woman in whom motherhood has been transfigured and at the same time as physical motherhood overcome. If Christ is the concrete goal of all human education, then Mary is the education of woman. The fact that on the threshold between the old and the new covenants, the new Eve stands by the side of the new Adam is the clearest proof that the distinction of the sexes has an eternal significance and value. And since Mary is the image or prototype of pure womanhood, the imitation of Mary will have to be the end of feminine education. Now the context here of this quote is an address on education, on the education of woman. But immediately we have to understand that the word education here has a rich and deep significance. That is, it can be better maybe translated as formation. It's not merely a formalized education as the exchange of information, but is a real formation of the human person. And the formation of the human person achieves its proper completion when we unify with Christ, when our will is conformed to the will of Christ. And for a man, Christ remains that exemplar or prototype. But for a woman, according to Stein, Mary stands in as the exemplar or prototype. She was the one who perfectly conformed herself to Christ and is put before us as an exemplar. And in a particular way is put before us as a female exemplar. Now, I'd like to ask you what you think of this. And do you find light in this idea given us by Stein for the meaning of femininity? I hope you do. Yes. So the words mask the question is what is the meaningfulness of femininity? The words masculinity and femininity have a kind of controverted meaningfulness about them. I've been using them here tonight as more or less qualifiers like male and female. When Stein uses them, she recognizes that typically feminine traits can be possessed by a male human being or typically masculine traits can be possessed by a female human being. One could think of it from this perspective. Each of us is man and woman. We live our humanity as male or female. And the way that humanity as male or female is expressed in life is masculinity and femininity. There's a typicality to it that's specific to one or other gender, but it's not like we're so utterly distinct that we don't share something here. So again, we remember that sexuality is embedded in humanity and we're more alike than we are different. It's not like a woman has a particular faculty of the soul that a man doesn't have, or a man has a particular faculty of the soul that a woman doesn't have. 
we have the same range of powers. And there's an equality to be found in this. And yet, given our bodily difference, the bodily difference of sexuality, these powers are manifest in life in different ways. And we can think of that as masculinity and femininity. So Mary is put before us by Edith Stein as the exemplar of woman. She, in her fiat, was entirely given over to God. And in that, became the mother of our savior. And here we see something of the feminine genius. Now, if we look at the term genius, we see something very interesting. Genius has the same native root as gender or generation. And the idea behind it is that to be a genius is to have this inborn trait. But its native meaning traces its roots to generation and to gender, to sexual difference. And so if we ask ourselves, what is the genius of man and woman, one way we can understand this, at least as I've proposed it for you tonight, is this capacity to become parent. The genius of masculinity is fatherhood. The genius of femininity is motherhood. And we see this put before us in an exemplary fashion in the Blessed Virgin Mary. She bears the genius of femininity in spades, in trumps. Why? Because her fiat, her being given over to God, was the conception of the word of God. And in this, she realizes the full meaning of being a woman, the full meaning of femininity. Does that make sense? Is that our genius? This capacity to become parent, this capacity to be father and mother? Now, if we to ask ourselves, is it restricted then to the domain of marriage and family? Of course not. Sexuality or gender has import upon the whole of society. It has a social and cultural and professional import. However, if what I have presented here tonight is true, our capacity to be husband and father, wife and mother, bears reference to all of that public sphere. That is, a man in the world will be in some way like a husband, in some way fatherly, or a woman in the world will be in some way like a wife, in some way motherly. Now, when Stein puts before us this differentiation and she focuses on woman, she speaks about a woman's ability to attend to the whole person. A woman as mother bears the person in her body and then has a close relationship to the child after birth. And in her attention to the child, the child matures through the course of time. A woman is attentive to the person of her child. And this bodily determination gives her also the capacity to be attentive to the persons of others. And so when a woman is in society, when a woman has a role to play in culture or in professional life, her ability to attend to the whole person of the other and help that person attain maturity will have this social, cultural, and professional import. So when I propose tonight that a foundational way to understand sexuality or female and male 
It's not restricted to that domain of marriage and family, even though I've proposed that as a primary way to understand it. It has an import across the whole of society, all of culture and professional life. And the genius of woman in this sphere won't be detached from motherhood. Motherhood, which is the capacity to bear a person toward maturity and to have this reference to the whole of a person, understanding him or her, understanding his or her talents, and helping that person to coordinate their talents towards maturation. Wouldn't this be a great boon to society and culture if there was a presence of this mode of being female? Obviously, obviously. Why, because society and culture, professional life is primarily about persons. We have all of these social, cultural, and professional structures, but they're all meant to ultimately serve persons. And if we lose sight of the human person in all of these structures, we lose sight of what we're all about. Stein proposes to us that when a woman accepts the responsibility of motherhood, whether actually or spiritually, then her presence in the world will be motherly. What is that attention to the person? And she'll infuse society and culture and professional life with this attention to the person. And we can immediately see that this will be important. This would be immensely important. Now, often, in contrast to this, the male personality or man is considered to be about objects. But it seems to me that this does a disservice to the male human being or to masculinity. It seems to me that men are primarily about objects or structures, but ultimately for the sake of persons. Why? Because objects or things and structures are meant to be for persons. We are not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for us. So these things are about persons. Men secure the good of persons structurally. Women secure the good of persons directly. But the masculine personality can lose sight of the person without the presence of the feminine personality. And with the presence of a feminine personality, the person is brought front and center again. And this then assists the masculine personality in attaining the correct structures so as to serve persons. So when we put before us this great dignity of sexuality from the perspective of parenthood, we ought not to understand it in a reductive way as tied only to marriage and family even if so they're founded, but it has this more universal or general scope for society, for culture, for professional life. Mm -hmm.